Welcome to Ag Vic Talk, keeping you up to date with information from Agriculture Victoria. Jessie Holmes has come full circle. Jessie grew up in the town of Dimboola and after moving away for study and work, she returned to the neighbouring shire of Yarriambiac as the youngest female local government CEO in Victoria. Her rural and agricultural roots run deep across the Wimmera and Mallee and she's a passionate advocate for and leader of the community she represents. Hi, I'm Caroline Winter and in this chat, Jessie helps demystify how leadership and advocacy work together and reveals the one big takeaway for anyone starting out down this path. Jessie Holmes, thank you for joining me in the AgVic Talk studio. Thank you for having me. Jessie, you grew up in Dimboola and are now the Chief Executive Officer of the neighbouring Yarriambiac Shire. Does that have special meaning for you? Oh, yeah, so it's good to be in the Wimmera where I grew up. So schooling in Dimboola and then went away, travelled overseas and went to university in Melbourne and then moved back to Horsham uh, and then Birchip, which is in the next neighbouring shire of Bullock, um, where I worked for nearly 10 years. So, yeah, just strong affinity to the Wimmera region. So my parents were born around this area as well, my mum in Watcham and my dad in St Arnott. So and my husband's off a farm just south of Horsham, so we're entrenched in Wimmera as far as you can be, I guess. How wonderful. So a bit of a homecoming, I guess, a bit of a, a full circle. <laughs> it really was. We've been back for nearly 13 years and it's um, it's one of those places where you leave and, you know, as you start to sort of drive up the Western Highway and you get closer and you go through the Grampians and then you start to see the broadacre cropping and, you know, the, the kind of the browns and the yellows as opposed to the greens that you start to realise you're back home in the Wimmera Southern Mallee area and it's it's a nice place to be. Can you paint a picture for me of the Yarriambiac Shire in terms of agriculture and I guess the flow on effects and the benefits that the industry brings to the community? So predominantly broadacre across Yarriambiac. So 94% of our land is zoned farming. We've got 14 towns um, across the, the council area. So the largest being Warwickmobile with sort of 2,500. Then you've got your next sort of range of towns, Matoa, Hopeton, uh, Rapunia Pominia, which are around the five to nine hundred, and then a spattering of sort of smaller towns that are between the sort of fifty to one hundred and fifty two hundred around Woomalang, Lasalle's Brim, Patchewellick, etc. So it's a very long shire. It's a long, skinny shire. We're about two hundred and twenty kilometres in length, um, and we have about five thousand kilometres of road that council manages. So one thousand are sealed, two thousand of gravel, and two thousand of earthen roads. So the average kind of farm property is sort of six to seven times what it was um, in the 1960s. So there's been a lot of aggregation across the agricultural communities as well. But the efficiencies on farm over that period have just, you know, continued to grow and grow. So, you know, the machinery that's used, the, you know, the chemical usage, the ways in which tillage and crop care and paddock rotation and just the amount of agronomy and extension research that's happened over that sort of the last four decades has really just seen the type and the quality of the crop that is grown just continue to be expanded upon each year. With that comes a bit of feast and famine as well. So, you know, we had the millennial drought, we've had floods in 2011 and 2016 and you'll get a good run of a few years and then you'll have a few lean years and then you'll have very dry years and so the fortunes can be varied and being a long shire, you can have 
an amazing crop in the south with the north really suffering or you can have below average yields in the south with a sporadic outbreak of good yields in the north so it can be at times quite a gamble for a lot of our community and then our rural community feeds into our townships as well so a lot of the businesses are rural dependent enterprises and so their fortune and famine also rely on the cycle nature of the agriculture yields as well. Now, you're the youngest female local government CEO in Victoria. You certainly were when you were elected at the age of 31. You're a few years into the job now. Did you (laughs) always have goals of being a leader? I definitely think my nature was to bring people together to get the best outcome, which I guess by nature kind of extends into leadership. But certainly, sure, if you asked my parents, they would have suggested that I was quite bossy. Um, as a younger person and that probably fed into them thinking that I would take charge at some point. I didn't necessarily leave school with the intention of going into local government. I'm not sure many people do. The the story of local government, most people you speak to in local government say they don't quite understand or know how they fell into local government. But yeah, it certainly made sense. I studied community development and policy planning at university and, and at a postgraduate level and we were living in Birchip at the time. My husband is an agricultural diesel mechanic, so that gives me kind of an agricultural radius to live in as well. So I returned and through some contacts to the local government at the time, Bullock was looking for a town planner. And so I started there effectively not long after I moved to town. And then over a 10 year period with Bullock, I added something else each year. So it was building and then planning local laws, community development, economic development, etc. So, you know, I got to a point where I was at a director level and I had statutory services and community services and really quite enjoyed being able to, you know, put into effect the decisions that were made by council. So you had a council making those strategic decisions and then you were the operational perspective able to actually make those decisions hit the ground into a reality. So 12 years into local government and it's one of those careers where you never have the same day twice and you get to be involved in lots of different things and you actually get to see real things happen on the ground. So you get to see your councillors making decisions that you know are going to change the lives of you know young people older people in sport and recreation in economic development in you know the environment for waste management and it's really nice to be in a position where you get to lead an incredible team of staff to make that those council decisions become a reality and so was it important for you in this kind of role as a CEO of a shire to be in an agricultural area, to, to be in charge of a rural community, so to speak? Yeah, so I think for me, I can't envisage a time where I wouldn't be in a rural area. Like I love everything about living in the Wimmera. We've got a small family now, so the girls are at primary school and our family is here, our parents are here, and I just can't imagine why you would be anywhere else. So, you know, all the things that I love about living in a regional area, you know, I love my my drive to work is sort of 60 kilometres and it's half an hour of just, you know, I might pass two or three cars, but... You know, I get to see the the paddocks changing over the 12 months, you know, from whether it's the burning stubble to the growing canola to the, you know, headers out at 9.30 at night with their lights on um, during harvest. And, you know, I get to see that cycle happen across across the community and I get to see what communities are like when things go right or go wrong. And some people don't always love that in small towns, everybody knows everybody's business that has positives and negatives. 
but it's very rare to get people in rural areas that aren't working 110% to the benefit of their community. So that kind of sense of community, I, I couldn't imagine being anywhere else, to be honest. Let's go back to your first leadership position. How did you find yourself there? And, and I guess if you think back, how did you feel at the time? So I started as a planner and then I moved to um, a coordinator. So I remember becoming a coordinator and then not just looking after myself, but looking after three staff at that time. So starting to learn some of those management skills around, you know, offering support to your staff, giving them structures to work within. Then I became a manager and then a director. And you certainly notice the change when you start to offer leadership instead of just management. So you're not just saying, here's your budget, this is what you spend and this is what you need to spend it on and this is the outcome that's expected. But you start to say, okay, well, we've got this budget, like what can we achieve? What's the strategic direction that's set by the community and the councillors? And so definitely the transition to management was fairly straightforward, learning finance skills and HR skills, but the transition to leadership where you empower your staff or, you know, even if you're leading with a community group, empowering them to be able to make the decisions and facilitating that is, for me, it was a bigger transition than just transitioning into management. But it's this really great space when you can see that the staff that you've empowered to make decisions or you've facilitated communities to prioritise and make something a reality like a new childcare centre or a new rec reserve And you can stand back and say, they did that. They were able to make that happen. And as a result of that, you may have provided leadership in relation to doing the advocacy to the state or federal government. But here you've got a community group that's actually got an outcome that makes it a better community for everybody. And I think that's a, it's a different skill set. And it's one that you have to work on a lot harder than I think necessarily just becoming a good manager. Let's talk about advocacy. You have been in an advocate type role for quite some years. How important is good advocacy and leadership in a rural community like yours, not just for the towns, but for the future of ag in the region? Oh, it's so important. Um, We do advocacy at a local level, at a state level, at a federal level, with government, with private partners. Good advocacy is being able to articulate the advantages, you know, of investing in a service or a a capital product that people can relate to or can understand. And so, you know, we talk about the storytelling that comes with advocacy. And because like a lot of people have a romanticised view of living in rural communities. So they're often associated with being quaint and the community all getting together. And and those things are very true, but the need for services and the need for development in those communities is also very real and is less romantic. So how do you say to a government, state or federal, that has a range of competing kind of priorities for their funding, how do you make yours the service they need to fund or your new hall, the hall that they need to fund. So constantly making sure your narrative is aligned to whatever those ministers' priorities are or the bureaucracy understands what you're trying to say as well is really important. So when I first came to Yari Ambiak, their external grant funding percentage was quite low for a small rural council and we've really managed to turn that around in three years so that they're above average in relation to attracting external grant funding from the state and federal government and that's built on being able to attract the funding but then also convincing 
the funding bodies that you can deliver on time and on budget, the product that you said that you were going to deliver. And so that's been, you know, building those partnerships and relationships with the bureaucrats. So the the people within the agencies, making sure that you're keeping them up to date, they know what's in the pipeline, they know what you're advocating for, and then briefing your relevant members of parliament at a federal and state level. So there's no surprises for them either. They're perfectly aware of, you know, if you raise something, it's not the first time they've heard it. They've got a briefing paper on it. And then, you know, obviously my councillors need to be out in the community, getting that feedback from the community, feeding that back into us so that we're actually advocating for what the community wants, because then the community can get behind you. Advocacy can be a bit of a vague or a misunderstood term at times. What does it mean to you and how have you been an agricultural advocate? I think for us, especially at a state and federal level, there's a lot of ministers who fundamentally don't understand agriculture. You know, I talked about that romanticised view, but it's also, it's a huge economic driver. And so you have to bring those ministers' awareness around what agriculture brings not just to the economy but you know the value add opportunities and depending on the minister that you're speaking to and what their kind of portfolios are or what their general interests are what their backgrounds are you need to tailor your advocacy to that so there's some ministers who are very familiar with agriculture who've been ministers for ag or ministers for regional development and so you can target your advocacy or pitch it at a different level with them as opposed to potentially ministers who've grown up in the city and who've been predominantly ministers of urban development or housing you're having to kind of pitch to them from an advocacy perspective explain the importance of agriculture, explain the importance of rural regional areas and the significance of, you know, the products that are being developed or grown out in these areas. So we're constantly raising awareness and raising education about rural and regional communities and agricultural communities to anybody who will listen so that they're aware of the challenges and the opportunities that come from government intervention or private intervention into the markets in rural areas as well. And how then are leadership and advocacy related? We've got a lot of leaders out in the community who might not be chief executive officers, but they're leaders in their communities because they're able to advocate well. So if you naturally have leadership in the sense that people will listen to you and will follow what you're asking of them, those natural kind of leadership skills, which don't necessarily mean that you're the president of a group or you're the CEO of a company. But if you have the ability to bring people along with you because they'll naturally follow or extend on your leadership skills, they're some of your better advocates. They're the people who can quietly and effectively raise awareness around issues and matters and services so that the players that can fund those services or that infrastructure or that development understand the narrative. So, you know, your best leaders are, without a shadow of a doubt, your best advocates. But I think we've got to be really clear that leadership doesn't necessarily come with a role in the sense of, you know, being an an elected kind of president or whatever it might be. Often leaders in your community are those that are able to strongly articulate what your community needs and they then become your best advocates. For someone looking to take up an advocacy role or who may have found themselves in a place of advocacy or leadership for the first time... What piece of advice would you give them? So I think it's just being really clear about what you want 
And I know that seems really simple, but when you ask for something, people want to know what they're giving you. So you need to really clearly define the problem and really clearly define the answer. So you need to be really clear and saying, you know, the issue here is that we don't have enough Div 1 nurses. The opportunity here is that we could collaborate with a, you know, a training organisation to employ 12 nurses and hope that six of them stay at the end of their training. And this is what we're going to do about it. So it's really clearly articulating the problem and really clearly articulating the outcome that you want and what your ask is. And people generally want to be able to give you what you ask for. If it's reasonable, people will find a way to give you what you've asked for if it's reasonable. Jesse Holmes, some really valuable insights and advice. Thanks again for joining me in the AgVic Talk studio. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to AgVic Talk. For more episodes in this series, find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this series with your friends and family. All information is accurate at the time of release. Contact Agriculture Victoria or your consultant before making any changes on farm. This podcast was developed by Agriculture Victoria, authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne.